Welcome to episode 158 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is retired Sergeant Major Robin Fortner. She served in the Marine Corps for 30 years. Enlisting the summer before Desert Storm kicked off, we talked about how the experience of having Desert Storm happen at the beginning of her career shaped her future and the attitude of the Marine Corps. We also covered what it was like to be the only one in the room, either because of her race or her gender or sometimes both. Robin gives so much great wisdom and so many great stories from her time in the military. I really think you're going to enjoy this episode, so let's get started. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Women of the Military Podcast would like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Robin. I'm excited to have you here. Yes, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's start with why did you decide to join the Marine Corps? Oh, awesome question. I get asked that so often. And um, I think my my answer is typical for some people. I was born and raised in New York City, and um, I was born and raised by a single parent. So by the time I got to high school, I just remember by my junior year thinking, what am I going to do next? Many people was going on college trips and things like that. But because I was raised by a single hardworking mom, don't get me wrong, but I also didn't want to put the burden on her, although she was more than happy to take the burden. And I say that because when I graduated, she I made a promise to her that I would do at least one year of college. And I did. And she she sent me to college on her own dime. But it's just something in me as, as the daughter, like, I just didn't want to put that burden on her. So since junior year of high school, I knew I was going to do something different. I'm going to pay my own way through school. That was my thought process then. And the military was one of those ways to make that happen. Not that I didn't hear about the Marine Corps. I didn't know much about the Marine Corps. So that was attractive to me because it was something different. And I didn't know much about it and nobody in my family that I knew of had ever joined the Marine Corps. They all joined the Army. So I wanted to be different, do something more challenging. And that's how I walked into, I walked into the recruiter's office and just that, that was my journey. I didn't know where it would take me. And honestly, I didn't even talk about school. I just wanted a platform to get out of New York and just not put the burden on my mom and just get that transition between, you know, young adult and adulthood. But lo and behold, never knew that I would actually enjoy being a Marine and continue to serve. 
Yeah, so you were looking for something a little bit different, and the Marine Corps is definitely different. And you didn't want to be a burden to your mom, single parent who had to work really hard. And you saw the military as an opportunity to make that happen. And so were you initially planning on just serving the first enlistment? Exactly. Um, initially planning for just serving four years, right? That's what they tell me. Although when you're 18, four years sounds like eternity already, right? So I was like, yes, that's all you're getting out of me is four years. But like I said, those four years, a lot transpired. You know, I had to grow up really, really fast. I joined underneath the logistics platform. I was a supply clerk, if, if you will. And I did well at the job. I didn't know exactly what that entailed at first. Once I started getting into it, I was doing well. I was getting meritorious promotions. Um, and I was like, wow, okay, this is different than what I thought. It wasn't just the nine to five. It was a lot more entailed to it. Desert Shield, Desert Storm had kicked off right as I got out of boot camps. I didn't have to go, but we had the back end of it where people were coming back and um, folks was telling us stories and things like that. So it felt bigger than just me at that point. And I knew then it was a bigger cause, right? So I was like, oh, wow, this is not just you're in here for the nine to five. There really is a cultural shift in your mindset that, you know, this is national security. This is for a bigger reason than me. So that gravitated with me. And um, I continued to to keep that warrior type of mentality throughout. You know, I didn't know where where it was going to take me. I really didn't. And each enlistment was just a new adventure, a new adventure. Um, So again, we will continue on, but that's kind of how I got started in the military. Yeah. So as you were going through boot camp, did you guys know anything about what was going on in the Desert Storm, Desert Shield area, and you were aware of what was happening? Good question. And um, I mean, honestly, no, it just it wasn't a topic of discussion at all. And then when you're 18, you don't always watch the news. Right. So I, I wasn't fully aware. It was when we graduated out of boot camp and went to our MOS school. For me, it was the supply school at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I remember watching it. Like it was January of 1991. And I just remember watching it on the news with everybody else thinking, how will this affect us? Right. So you, you're just kind of watching the Marines land ashore. And it's like, oh, wow, that's that's <laughs> that's kind of what I do now. And I remember checking into my first unit and somebody, you know, just just a random NCO, you know, everybody got something to say to the newbies anyway. Right. And I remember vividly at everything else that they probably said, one person said to us and he said, don't unpack. That was his words. I was like, don't unpack. You're next type of thing. So of course, you know, you get the butterflies like, oh, shoot, (laughs) this is real. This is real. But that was my introduction to when you join the service, you know, what it means to serve. And with that, it's, you know, you are holding up your end to defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that that could possibly mean, yes, you may go into harm's way. So at least was introduced to that early on that I had to be ready to go into harm's way. Yeah, it sounds like it played a big impact in kind of like shifting your focus. Kind of like me, I was kind of like clueless. And then, you know, the military, I was like, oh, yeah. Before September 11th, I was like, oh, the world is happy. Everything's great. And then September 11th happened and everything changed. And that like shifted my perspective and eventually led me to the military. And it sounds like it was kind of similar for you with Desert Storm. Exactly. Because, you know, you're definitely oblivious to, to world problems um, because we're sheltered a little bit, you know, depending on where you're from, but just sheltered from a lot of the tragedies that definitely occur on the international platform. So I had no idea that that that's would be entrusted to me, you know, to me, I'm still a young girl from New York City, not 
the warrior that I was trained to be at the time. And I think that has a lot to do with the mindset. So yeah, you're absolutely right. At least from the beginning, that that one sharp tone and that one sharp comment, it was like, it stopped everything else and was like, oh, the reality is he's right. You know, um, we definitely, if it would have lasted longer, we definitely would have been the next wave to go. Absolutely would have. It just didn't last as long as, you know, OIF and OEF. But if it did, we definitely would have been the next ones to go. It was an eye opener. But again, it wasn't that we shied away or ran from it. It's just, it was just an eye opener for a young 18 year old that, yes, this is real. And it's not just for play play. It's not Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts. This is a, a national service. So, yeah, that's an interesting start to your career. And just to see and hear the impact it had. So, you said that you did really well and you were getting promoted and were you enjoying your time in the Marines? Absolutely. Um, I think that's important, right? Because everybody's journey is different and there's decisions that has to be made once your contract is up. And like I said, I think people to me make a difference. The leadership you have your first four years has a huge impact on how you stay in. Tell Marines all the time, hey, try, try not to leave the Marine Corps because of people, you know, make sure it's something you want to do, but don't let people guide that. I grew into that concept. My first four years, thankfully, I was blessed with good leadership. And no, every day was not a rose garden, but I had a great cadre of NCOs who was able to take me under their wing. I'm blessed for that because I didn't join necessarily so polished. I'm going to be honest with you. I really wasn't. As a city kid, it took me a minute to really <laughs> understand military ways, right? It just, it just took me a minute. But the leadership is what, and not coddled, they demanded from me but I was able to step up to that plate. And they just kept demanding different ways of behavior that was expected of Marines. And I was able to step up to that plate, thankfully, because of them. It wasn't about, you know, killing my career or writing me up or anything like that. It was it was leading and guiding because at the end of the day, you're 18, you're 19 years old, right? So you, you, you have to mature into the actual job. And once I did that, it, it continued on because I always had the work ethic. Think foundationally, my mother always put a, a good work ethic in me. So that part wasn't the problem. It was just learning how the discipline of being in the actual military. So that was helpful. Like I stated, I was able to get put up on meritorious boards. I worked my butt off to study for them and, and perform. Um, and that was recognized. So I was able to fleet up a little bit faster than my peer group. At the same time, some of the largest struggles my first year is that like many women, sometimes they get caught up and I'm no different. You know, I managed to get to Sergeant Major, but I was Lance Corporal at some point and I became pregnant in my first enlistment, which can deter a lot of people. Back then, this is 30 years ago, we were given a choice. So women have evolved in the military. Back then, I was given a choice that I could have gotten out of the Marine Corps simply because I was pregnant. And that was something I had to think think about, and I did, but I chose to stay in. I felt like watching some of the other lady Marines who had already done it ahead of me, they were thriving and being a Marine and a mom, having someone to see and to witness that helped my decision. If I was surrounded by nothing but men say, I might've been swayed to get out because I might've felt like I couldn't do it. But I had an example of success where they were thriving and still being a mother to their kids. And I, was, you know, I just had to stop and think, okay, this is possible to, to do. And I watched my mother work hard and still raise kids. So that was not foreign to me. So I continued on and I was like, no, I'm going to stay in. And, you know, I was warned it's going to be tough and blah, 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 blah. 
while, but it was finding that Marine Corps family to continue and make that happen and still serve well. I vowed to myself that that moment, like around that time, I vowed to myself then that my child would never be a crutch for me and it would never be an excuse because I, I saw where that was important. I needed to make sure I balanced them both. Interesting that you talked about like the rule that you could get out. And it's almost like that rule was there to make you think that you needed to get out. But you were lucky and you had examples of women who had done it and were leading the way. And had you not had those, you kind of would have been like, well, they're telling me that I can get out. So maybe I'm supposed to get out. So it's interesting how rules like that, that was a rule when I was in, in 2007. And it changed, I think it's only recently changed in the last few years. So it's crazy how much changes happen and how much the stigma around women getting pregnant changes when you remove that type of rule. Absolutely. Right. It changed if the rule was removed, right? That, okay, this is something I signed up for. This is my obligation. This is something I have to make happen instead of having an out per per se. You know, the more we have evolved in the military, the more women that join and our role, our roles within the military has changed dramatically, as you know. And that has put us on an equal playing field that, yes, you can balance family and being in the military at the same time. Difficult, don't get me wrong, and different different challenges as we'll speak about, but it is doable. And it's a prominent thing to, to, to say you serve men and women and to do it underneath those stressful types of conditions and be successful on the back end. But the key part, as you know, is the representation, you know, like, I mean, even now, I think females need, just need to see that it's possible, right? To, to see what's in the realm of the possible. So having, and they were young NCOs and that's what made it even more relevant to me because they were closer to my age and it wasn't far-fetched. It was something there close. And at every level, I think that's just important that, that we have those mentors. They don't have to be assigned. They don't have to be formal, but just leadership by example. I watched them without them even know I was watching them. And I, I saw what I needed to do, you know, and they thankfully behaved themselves in a, in a model sense that I can emulate. What was it like to go from being a, a young Marine And then being a young Marine who was also a mom, like, how did you find the balance to keep going? And like, when it was time to reenlist to decide to stay in, did you feel like you had to stay in because you needed to provide for your child? Or did you feel like, no, this is the right thing to do. This is what I want to do. Spot on, Amanda. Great questions. I think a little bit of both. I think definitely in my mindset was now there's an added human being, (laughs) you know, who is dependent upon me and I definitely needed to provide. Right. So um, I definitely knew that at the time I didn't have many other options. Right. So going home, I used to always ask myself, go home and do what? You know, I was be starting all over where once again, when you saw families thriving in the military, or I can stay, provide certain benefits for my child, for myself, and get my family, if you will, at the time to a level that that we can actually operate on both sides. Um, So I think both of them crossed my mind. You know, I'm trying to think back 26 years ago, but both of those thought processes crossed my mind. At the end of the day, it was definitely family and core. Um, I still loved what I was doing when I was growing into that, right? I was, I was growing into my role. I was becoming an NCO. 
a non-commissioned officer. So that was a big thing for new new recruits, if you will, and new Marines. Become an NCO, right? And I was becoming an NCO. So from the professional side, I felt like I, I had um, a path to grow here in the Marine Corps. And I didn't want to let that go. But many women, I think, suffer from mommy guilt or even men from parent guilt that where's the balance of in any job? If if it's a high demanding job, how do you balance family? And that's not just the military, that's in any job. And that's where the next enlistment, if you will, and thereafter, that's where it came from. It was no longer about whether or not I was going to stay. It was how I stayed and how effectively I can balance the two because my work ethic and my family life are both important, right? And the more you pull on one side, the other suffers or at least sacrifices something. So how how do I do that became my focus from the latter point on. Once I enlisted once, I don't know, something in me, I knew at that point I would at least retire. I, I knew it. I said, I'm going to stay. At that point, I just knew I was going to stay at least till 20 because it, that's just the path I was there. I was set that we are going to be a Marine. So you're talking about being in the Marine Corps in the early 90s. And I mean, there's not very many women in the Marine. And even in thing that you wrote for me, you were the few of the few. So what was it like to be a woman in the Marine Corps in the 90s? And you were a single mom, right? No, I actually was married at this point. I was married to another Marine. Back to your question about, yes, dual military for one, but in the 90s when when things were still, you know, the relationship of, of gender equality was still a hot topic and it wasn't uncommon just like many other people to be the only one. I think our numbers for the Marine Corps is still the smallest of all services. Back then we were averaging around 7%. Now in 30 years or so, we've only increased to 9% working our way to 10. But this is why I said few of the few because it, it we just don't it's just not enough if you will it's just not a lot of female marines so you always on guard of gender biases um and that's just from the beginning you you learn it that you're going to face it some people face it better than others i was one that can somewhat take adversity or be able to work and navigate my way through adversity without it depleting me or draining me so much. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't work constantly against gender biases that you faced in the workspace, outside the workspace, in programs and policies and everything that was set for you. You know, you you needed to work harder, you know, and I know I took that to heart and I always made sure I worked hard to ensure that I was representing not just myself, but I knew no matter what I did, I was representing the masses because that's just that's just how it was. Even to the day I retired and even now in retirement, that is always a constant welcome burden though at the same time. But it's, it's, it's a constant for most females that they recognize that they have to go above and beyond at times to truly make the same impact as maybe an average male and then some. Just growing up in the Marine Corps in the 90s, I think I saw and experienced a lot of changes. By the time I got to a position to where I can influence, I was able to influence a lot of changes. So the longer I stayed in, even after 20 years, one of the reasons I stayed in the Marine Corps, because I could have left out as well, is I wanted to continue to serve because there wasn't that many at the level that I had achieved. And I knew that if I left right now, who would be at the table? We just don't have it, right? I mean, it's not, they just wasn't around. So many people would have tripped out, whether they're bodies or they wanted to raise families for many different reasons. And I knew that it was important for somebody 
to continue on and be at the tables um, and be able to, to, to speak our piece and be a voice for the voiceless, you name it, all those things that come with it. But I took on that burden early on, just watching the gender biases around me, even from the 90s. There were so many different policies and, you know, so much fear amongst men to talk to women. And we were just so ostracized, you know, they were the, you know, just the, the career killers and all types of names. And somebody has to endure. Somebody has to endure. So I think my generation in the 90s, we endured for our time, but before us, there was so much more that they endured. And I felt like it was my responsibility to keep it on so that we can get to the level we are now. Still a lot of work to do, but we continue to push the ball forward. And did you feel any extra racism towards you as being a Black female? Because I'm sure you were a minority as a woman, but you were also a minority as a minority in in the Marine Corps. I mean, absolutely. A a lot is systematic or hidden. So I know we can't see each other right now, but I stand six foot tall on a good day, right? With boots on. So I have a posture that is overbearing, if you will, for a woman. So many times I've learned that when I walk into a room, it's different from maybe a five foot two, you know, it's just a different posture. So men didn't always approach me personally in the same manner, but you get the hidden isms genderism and racism, things like that. When you see different cliques and, you know, over talking of a person, you know what I'm saying? Um, the ostracism of, so there's, there's a lot of that, that still continued on because you have to get used to being the only in the room, whether it's for me, the only person of color or, and that's male or female or the only female in the room and how to, I learned through thick skin, how to be heard and how to add value. And I found that instead of, you know, complaining and being angry and, you know, just, just giving up or those type of things that I wanted to probably do deep down inside, I felt that when I perform, I changed mindsets. I used to call it like my chisel, right? I would say, if I can perform in my box, then I'm chiseling on a mindset without really being political about it or or to a point where they're not receptive. And you can see the, it change. Like I, I can recall starting a job at a section or whatever, and you could see the reception of me when I first get there. And then throughout the time, I'm chiseling mindsets based on my performance, my knowledge, being proficient, staying on top of my game, outdoing them in a lot of different ways. And, and with that, you could tell on the back end, the chiseling of how they saw people of color and how they saw women. And many men throughout my career have actually told me that, you know, Robin, <laughs> you know, when I first met you, da, 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 da. and as well as being a person, you know, from a city environment. So my tongue is not always curved. <laughs> um, I can lash out as good as the next one, but I found that I would harness that and make it into a positive, productive output versus just channeling it and it imploding. I made sure that I I was able to perform. That has helped my career is going into something. I already know it in the back of my head. We kind of talked briefly before we started recording, just having a meeting today. I knew before I got there, I'm going to be the only person of color and I'm going to be the only female in the room. And what I say and how I say it affects Everybody else who falls into those two categories, right? Fair or unfair is real. And it's reality to to how we need to approach some of the circumstances today. Yeah, last week, 
I did an interview for the VA Born the Battle podcast, and it was three male Marines and me, and we were talking about Afghanistan. And before the interview, I felt so much pressure because I was going to be representing women because I knew I was the only woman being there. And I was, I don't feel qualified. I can understand that pressure. Like you have to think I'm a woman. There were three other men there and me. And I was like, I was the one voice for women. I had a lot of responsibility on like sharing my experience and my story and helping share that's like how women feel. Not all women, but you know, there is a lot of pressure. I think we all bear it, right? In some manner. We, we, we all bear it from the time we we start, you know, until the time I can't even say stop, because like you and I, um, after service in uniform, you are continuing to serve. But it's important. And I think just in the evolution of, of any country or any initiative, if you will, if we want to see change, we have to be a part of the change. Right. And we have to emulate the change. That's what I said. I welcome the burden at the same time, you know, and I think leaning on each other and doing things like this and getting around with the females and um, just venting out or just talking. And then you find out you're not on an island by yourself. Right. There's other people doing the same thing. And that can be uplifting for you to go fight another day. But I think the way we fight is important. How we're heard. I have sat back and I'm sure you have too. sat back in rooms sometimes. Sometimes it's good to just observe, right? And you can watch and you watch the reactions, say when another female may talk or, you know, even another person of color or another from this, you name it, right? And just watch the reaction. So I've always learned to watch the reaction, right? Because in my head, I'm, I always think I have to know the game to play the game. So if my strategic move is not moving mountains, I need to pivot and try it another way because the end result, my end goal is for them to be receptive. You put them, whoever you want to put them to be, but you want the people to be receptive. So how are you getting to that end goal? I kind of take a step back sometime and make sure and reevaluate the how, not just the what we have to do, but the how we go about doing it. Yeah, that's really great advice. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about that. And just like you shared your story and it resonated with my story. And I didn't even realize like how much pressure I put on myself. But then I was like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about and how we're not alone. Sometimes we feel alone, like we're the only one who feels that way. And then you have a conversation and you realize, no, you're not alone. You're just like everybody else. Let's get a little bit closer back to your career and go through some of the highlights of different things that you want to touch on. I'm not sure. I mean, you served during September 11th, so I don't know if you want to talk about that or if there's another thing that sometimes there's hidden history in the the 90s that people don't know about. Lots has happened, I guess, in 30 years, right? You know, especially in the Marine Corps, I think we were talking about how we, we joined and what was expected of women then and what's expected now. And I think everybody during that time frame can see their own change. So much, much has happened. We could be on a whole nother podcast, but a couple of things to highlight, not just from the 90s, you kind of brought up September 11th. That's the key for all the services. I think that was a good turn, turning point for all. Right? It was just, it was different from there's just shield, there's a storm, and the way we got into OIF and and, and OEF, and it, it's a shift for the whole country. So September 11, again for me being a New Yorker, you know, was was definitely a real pivotal point in my career. It it didn't really stop me from wanting to serve or thought I would serve more because I was already on that glide path to serving, but I served differently. You can be trained to be a warrior and it's different when you got to really put it into action, right? So, and that's what 
September 11 to me did. It, it made everyone true warriors to me, um, not just in concept and not just because we was in garrison for so long. It really brought into putting into execution phase for a long time, as, as you know. But at the time of September 11, 2001, I was serving on the drill field at the time. And for the Marine Corps, if you don't know, we had, I have to use the word had because it's past tense now, had the only segregated boot camp at the time down at Paris Island. So I was a drill instructor in an all-female battalion, and we trained all-female recruits. And I just remember we was just beginning a, a cycle when September 11th hit. But the drill instructor I was prior to that and the drill instructor I became, that's what I mean by training that next generation of warriors it went from you know conceptual based tactics to really executing and getting into the mindset, not just from the concept, but in the heart and the culture of the recruits, because we knew that when we graduate them, they were off. They were going, just like the guy told me years ago, you're next. It was that kind of mentality shift I wanted to put into the recruits from day one, that this is not a game. I need you to, to, to take everything seriously. And we poured that into them. And even after that, you can see the difference in the way we train recruits. It was reality. It was reality checks. And that started the mindset from the very, very, very beginning. I don't think we knew, or I could talk, talk for myself, if you was in an, an environment that wasn't deploying at that very exact time, everybody was itching to get to, <laughs> to the fight. Everybody was itching to get to the fight. And I remember there was a hot field that came across and it came across about this task force team to send to Afghanistan to train the Afghans. And I put my name in a hat and I put my name in and I was like, yes, send me, send me, send me. And then it came back out of everyone whose name was in a hat. I was the only one who got denied. <laughs> but the reason I got denied was because I was a female. Only reason I got denied. And where they were going for this particular mission, just, just the culture in Afghanistan would never had allowed for a female to come in at the time. You know, again, bumping up against obstacles because of your gender, you know, and I personally learned not to take one under the fence. I was like, you got to be kidding me. But when you get educated and learn the, the, the culture of the Afghan, then you realize how that would not have played at the time. So it took me a minute to get into the fight after the drill field, but I had to learn this is my role right now. So the rolling back, I need to train the recruits to get to the fight until I'm done with this duty. And then I too can get to the fight. But, you know, that just goes to show you that gender biases or just cultural things, it's not just specific or unique to us. It, it's something that, that we have run across through, throughout this entire planet, if you will, right? In, in many, many, many other countries. During my career, because I love being on a drill field, actually, I, I went back twice. But aside from the deployments, we also can talk about some of the, the pivotal historical things that I was a part of. One that I'm proud of is what we call the Ground Combat Element Integrated Task Force. Long name, but in short, it was nothing more the, than the initial push for testing females in combat roles. So you remember before the exclusion law was lifted, the Marine Corps was the only service who put together a task force unit where we tested that theory to the core. And I got chosen to be the senior enlisted for that battalion, if you will, right? Again, completely out of the norm for most people because we had never done it before. We've never put a female SAR major in charge of combat MOSs. 
This is the first time we're doing it from the operational side, but also from the humanistic side. How do we integrate men and women? You know, um, it just had never been done in execution to that level. There's small pockets, but not to that level. So very proud of that and what that has led to, aside from the politics, what we learned inhibitedly to the unit itself and how to build that, that strong unity of both male and female through many challenges. But the end result, once again, as I talked about that chisel effect from where we started, the challenges we went through chiseling, chiseling all the way till we ended and the attitudes of our males on the end for me was success. What's in the realm of the possible? Aside from being held to political strength, what's in the realm of possible for men and women to serve together and respect each other to that capacity? It was a huge shift in culture, huge on a small level, but very proud of that at the same time. Reaching the, the rank of Sergeant Major was another. Let's stop and talk about what that experience was like. And was that part of like how boot camp went from being segregated and to being desegregated where men and women were in the same training? Or what are some of the other things that you can see that the work that you guys impacted in the future of the Corps? Great question, because out of that unit, you know, again, so much came so much came out of it. We learned a lot about ourselves. We learned a lot about our warfighting capability. We learned a lot about our, our um, SOPs, our standards. We, we, we learned so much that we had to kind of reevaluate. One thing we talked about was that you can see now is definitely a lot of effort has been put into the equipment that we wear. Right. And the amount of weight that's put into that military, not even just the Marine Corps, but Army as well, what an infantryman is required to carry. You know, so if we're asking them to carry X amount of weight and it is like three-fourths of a typical average woman weight, I don't care who you are, you can't do it effectively for a long period of time. If, if a male was forced to carry three quarters of his weight the entire time, there would be significant medical implications and it's no different, right? So we, what came out of that that I even saw is the lighting of the load, right? So finding material that serve the same purpose, give the same protection, but don't have the heavy weight that we were accustomed to, to, to bearing, right? So much has changed in there. The Marinko has changed their sizing metrics, if, if you will. When we were in the actual unit itself, you would watch female Marines and with, without complaint, put packs on their back that it just physically, it wasn't correct, right? It just, it just didn't physically fit them in a manner to where they could be effective and, and carrying it across because it wasn't made for them. I mean, it just, it just wasn't, it was made for an average man. It wasn't made for average person. Um, so we had to gender neutralize the way we went about sizing at the same time. So those are just a few. And then from the culture standpoint, we, we also looked and I say, we as a Marine Corps, right? Different task force would actually come in and do different things. But we as a Marine Corps looked at where does this start? And that's where the boot camp came along. That actually has been a conversation for years, even before that. Do we desegregate? Why don't we? Things like that. But where does it start? And starting at the initial level can never go wrong, right? If we're going to talk about putting you together from an infantry standpoint, then you got to be put together from a boot camp standpoint as well, right? And train and learn how to train together and gain that respect. I go back to the cultural piece, putting that chisel, right? Your performance and everything, no matter how much 
awareness and things you want to push down people's throat, it, it means something different when they can feel it, you know, when, when they can go through it and see it and feel it. So starting from the beginning is something that that, that was looked at to to help in the progress. Many people tell you it's not it's not the end all be all. It just it's not. But it's 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 a it's an avenue to to really look at and approach. And that's where the Marine Corps went with that. Not to speak on the behalf of all specifics of the leadership, but that's kind of looking at things like the GCEITF is a good example of where the culture can can actually go with success. I learned about the Marine Corps being segregated in an interview and someone was like, what was it like to be with men and women in your basic? And I was like, normal? I don't know. <laughs> like, that's just, I thought everybody did it. And so it was kind of shocking to hear that. And he was, he was a Marine and he was like, I just don't understand. And then when he talked to me and heard my experience, he's like, maybe the Marine Corps knows what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I remember being a drill instructor down there. Actually, I was the sergeant major of the actual 4th Battalion who trained all females back then. And we would get visited by other services to see how we did it. They were more interested in us back then and how we did it because it it will come with pros and cons. You know, it goes back to my original thought process of it's not about what you do, it's how you do it, right? So even if we integrate, how we integrate is still very important, right? You can almost make it worse, right? You, you can almost make it worse if you don't have the right mentality and the right culture in place. Leaders have to be careful even now going forward. How do we do that? Because many of the other services, although it's integrated, they face different challenges still. And we too are going to be no different. There's going to be challenges. So to get ahead of those things and, you know, treat people like adults, but it's not impossible to do. I I am an advocate that it's not, it's not impossible, not impossible to do so. Yeah. So the last thing you were going to talk about was making the rank sergeant major. I mean, I just wanted to uh, close out with that because that's the the last rank I held is the highest rank and, you know, it would be equivalent to any of the service master chiefs and things like that. It's once again, the few of the few, right? So it really is. It's a small percentage that make it to this rank as it is. And then there's an even smaller percentage that are women. But it's also been a highlight of a lot of my career because you're in an influential position, right? And so it really was the time frame for me to say, now it's the give back time frame to work hard at being at the table or to work hard to being heard, to work hard to give the true candid opinions, you know, and not to throttle back. It's taking everything that that we worked hard for and making sure that it has footing and a sense of it's not going to die when I leave out, right? So there's enough footing there. Like even now I look back and I, I see strategic people. I don't want to say it like that, but, you know, folks who will carry on the message at the same time, because I have a mantra of each one teach one. And it wasn't about getting here for myself. It was about can someone be at the table, right? So, and to continue that out and, and teach the next one and develop the next one so that we can continue that push of someone being at the table and we won't attrit out. It's tough to stay 30 years for men or women. It's tough to stay 30 years. And I recognize that very tough because I was able to do it. I wanted to make sure that it continues on. And there's so many people, so many great Marines behind me who is doing just that. Like I see their mindset is already, I'm going to stay, you know, like they know they're going to stay. And that's something really positive to see and hear because during my time frame, I didn't always have, it was much of an anomaly for those who stayed to 30. That was more of the, you know, 
definitely the smaller, the smaller percentages. And now I hear so many more ready to stay for 30. So if I can influence anything, I'm I'm constantly putting it out there 30 years, 30 years, because I want them to see the possible and, and, that, and that it is possible to stay. And it's it's rewarding at the same time. You know, you can get a lot, a lot out of it, but you can influence a lot of things. And I think that's just what we need. The diversity of thought is just needed at all levels. Um, so once you get to that higher rank, when you can sit in a room with the commandant of the Marine Corps, or you sit in a room with generals and the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, and you have proven yourself credible where they value your opinion, that says a lot. As I retired out and, and, and transitioned last year, you know, many people ask me, do you miss it? Do you miss it? And of course you miss a lot about it, but I can honestly say I don't feel a void. I feel like I've done what I've been put on this earth to do. I have fulfilled my 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 calling, if you will, in uniform. I just don't feel a void, and I just never have. And I think I think that's because I was able to stay. But also, it's not the years you stay, but the difference you've made. You know, there's several different initiatives that have been blessed to be called upon for my candid advice and. It's never been just what Robin felt. I would reach out and how are we feeling? What are we thinking? So that I can articulate those thoughts through me um, or whoever's at the table. But, you know, something that would benefit the masses and not just specifically for me. But it's been rewarding and I I wouldn't change much. I'm going to be honest. (laughs) I just wouldn't change much. Of course, there's always things you could tweak, right? There's always things you could fix. But I just wouldn't change much. I, I, I like for the time that I was in challenges we have, I've been able to be a part of that. And now it's exciting sitting back, watching it continue on. I mean, look where they're going. I don't recall her name. I want to say it was on LinkedIn. And um, she young PFC, young, young Marina, she talked about the best decision she made was becoming an infantryman. I got a young female saying the best decision she made was infantry. What? I mean, we didn't hear about that. That was just unheard of during my time frame. So look at the evolution of mindset that we're going. You know, we could talk for days stories of when I came in, what I was taught at boot camp, and it was nothing about combat, right? It was nothing about very, very little. It was about being a female in uniform and acting according to that, you know. But here we are training warriors, male or female. Um, and there's a lot to be said about that. I still think the ball can be pushed further and faster, but I don't want to lose sight of the small and the small and the large hurdles that have already been made. And there's a lot that that we can celebrate at the same time. Yeah. And right before we started talking, you said there was a lot to do in the military. And now you're a veteran and you see there's a lot to do for veterans. So does that excite you as you have like your second career? And what do you see happening with the work that you're doing now? Exactly. Uh, you know, it's like continue to serve. I think, uh, you know, just just that feeling in me cannot just be like a light switch and turned off. Right. So when I retire, I didn't just turn it off. I think that's going to always be a gradual and it's going to be always be a light in me and any opportunity that I can. I'm, I'm jumping on it. As I retired, the first thing that that excited me was being able to be on um, advisory boards and governance boards for Marine Corps Association foundation and different organizations where I can be that voice still, right? And I can also support the active duty at at the same time. And the more I continue to do that, whether it's it's on the female side or the, the Marine Corps in totality, that resonates with me and it, it still it still keeps me going. It very much excites me, right? That I can still serve. 
And then now from the veteran, I learn more and more about the gap between active duty and veteran service, right? Meaning when you finally in your service, whether that's retiring or you get out or medically retired, whatever the case may be, and then you transition to being a veteran, to me, there's there's somewhat of a gap in there of handoff, right? And I think I would love to work more in that gap, if that makes sense, whether it's mentoring, educating on my own personal experience or opening the doors of things, because it's so overwhelming of what to do next. For those who serve a long time, it's just You've been doing this your entire adult life. And now all of a sudden to, to make that shift, some people do it better than others, but there's just that gap in there where we're just so used to that camaraderie and you don't want to take your hand off of that in totality. I mean, I think that would be helpful for many veterans going forward, along with what resources are out there, what benefits are out there, helping to tweak those benefits and services that can be more uh, modernized, if you will, for the veterans of today. So I think there's just so much a lo- so much work to be done that hasn't even been touched yet, especially since we, for me, I'm coming out during the pandemic. So there's still more that's revealing itself that I can do or opportunities I can step in. So I'm excited for the future. I'm excited to be more involved. I've been doing my own research for what, what uh, women's services are out there. And I'm even talking to some of my peer groups who have since retired, same as me recently. And that's why I said, I know there's a gap there, right? So I'm always looking, how can I be in that gap? How can I feel some of that? And I do my own things on the, on the side at times, whether it's getting a small cadre together, being a part of a small group that just meets weekly. We just talk. Things like that is helpful. And I found it's mentally helpful. And it can help the transition from being in the military, having this military family, and then what comes next when you take that off and not losing yourself, your identity and your work at the same time, because there's so much value in veterans. It just needs to be brought out more and more. Yeah. I was talking to someone. I was like, well, there's like people who are transitioning out of the military. And then there's like when you're transitioning and then you're a veteran. I know they're technically veterans when they get out, but they're not really veterans. It usually takes one to five years, depending on like what your life situation is before you're like a veteran. Yes, exactly. Because I'm I'm still in that transition, right? I, I feel like it's just been a year, right? So I'm still, to me, I'm still in that transition. I still learn from different sources and LinkedIn, and I, I am still learning. And it's so much. So you got to figure out, well, what do I really want to do? Because I can't do it all, right? So reinventing yourself or, or just um, reflecting on what is it that you really want to do? And I think it's important for people to take that time, no matter what service, no matter how long you served. It's important to really know which direction you want to go in. For those of us who retire, especially for 20 or more, I think that's really important, even more so because you've been doing this for so long. There is a level of that that has defined you to the point of this is what I'm used to doing. But taking a uniform off doesn't lessen my value. You know, it just it changes my path. And that's really all I want that to do. And that's 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 what I've tried to emulate in my own self is taking it off. is just move my path. But who Robin is has not changed. And I will continue on to, to press forward to serve. In case veterans will always hold dear to my heart now. Um, active duty as well. 
I am I'm very much in tune to how we support the active duty, you know, whether it's equipping services, just being supportive as a country and in this next fight, wherever that may go. Right. So I think that's important just as citizens to continue that support. Yeah. This has been a great interview and I really loved getting to talk to you. And I always like to end my interview with one last question, which is what advice would you give to young women who are considering military service? Yes. Great, great question. As always, young women who are considering going into military service, I think the biggest advice I would give them is to be ready, to be mentally and physically ready, to be willing to step up and outside of their box for the greater good. But at the same time, the reward will be so great and the confidence that will be instilled will be enormous um, and unmatchable, I believe, in most cases. So if if you're considering joining, I, I would ask that you always not be afraid to ask the hard questions. You only know what you know. Find someone to talk to, find a mentor, actual recruiter that link you up with somebody. Make sure you get the right information before you go in. The better prepared you are, the better that that transition from civilian to military will be. And then you look at it from a positive aspect. That's such great advice. Thank you so much for being on the show and for giving your wisdom and sharing about your experience. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you, Amanda, for having me. I truly, truly enjoy talking with you. listening to this week's episode of women of the military podcast do you love all things women of the military podcast become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review it really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow are you still listening you could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book women of the military on amazon every dollar helps helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.